The Gist is sponsored by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Get a free 30-day trial by visiting GoToMeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, February 24th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know what I didn't like about the Academy Awards? Yeah, I've been stewing on it for a couple days. No, there is a lot to choose from. I'm not going to say something you thought of. It's the acceptance speeches. For years and years, this has been the tradition. The acceptance speeches seem to require the winner to say, this award is not just for me, but it's for all the people with the ailment or affliction or difficulty of my character. Like Eddie Redmayne won for playing Stephen Hawking, and so this is for people around the world battling ALS, and Julianne Moore won for playing a woman with Alzheimer's, and she said people with Alzheimer's deserve to be seen so we could find the cure. Patricia Arquette, a working mom, let me tell you about wage equality, and they all seem sincere. These actors are, of course, paid to seem sincere, and in these specific cases, honored for seeming sincere. But we enjoy good acting because you created a character we identify with because it represents some slice of the human condition. But this almost mandatory dedication of your award to the real people with that condition, well, that's actually what your performance does. So when Jose Farrar won for playing Cyrano de Bergerac, did he dedicate the award to all people with big noses? Did Laurence Olivier have to prattle, possibly in pentameter, on about this award being for all Scandinavian regions who are compelled to vindicate their ancestors? In fact, I've went back, I've looked at these tapes. When Ray Milan won for Days of Wine and Roses, which was the most compelling depiction of an alcoholic up to that time, you know what Ray Milan said? He said nothing. He just bowed. All right. And then William Holden won for Stalag 17. Did he say this is for prisoners of war? Did he say this is for those whose spirit could not be confined? No. Here's the entire extent of William Holden's remarks. Thank you. How about Patty Duke? Patty Duke wins for playing Helen Keller, deaf, blind, just a historical figure, a reference to her. Here now, the entirety of Patty Duke's remarks. Thank you. I looked at dozens of actors who won in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They, like current actors, were often playing characters with hurdles to overcome. They all just thanked their director or the Academy or someone who believed in them. They all seemed to know that they were actors playing parts. They weren't the parts. They weren't speaking for the voiceless. They seemed to know that's what the performance is for. On the show today, I spiel about Papa Bear's war story is too hot, and Jose Antonio Vargas on what to refer to people in this country unlawfully. But first, the snow in Boston means anger, violence, recrimination, and lawn chairs. Boston has experienced such a passive word. Boston has suffered through a hundred inches of snow so far this winter. A hundred inches. That is Minute Bowl plus a little mini Minute Bowl. Nine extra inches beyond Minute Bowl. So Minute Bowl with his arms raised maybe touches the top of Boston's snow pile. So given this much snow, there is the issue of cars and parking. It is a time-honored and hot-button issue, we're told, where Bostonians shovel out a space and then stick something there to save it. Space saving. And it 
has led to many instances of calumny within the greater Boston area. Joining me now is Jennifer Peter, Senior Deputy Managing Editor for Local News at the Boston Globe. We're going to talk all about the logic and history of space saving. Hello, Jennifer. Hi there. Do you do it? I do it, yes. I live in a part of the city where everyone does it, and not to sound like there's peer pressure or herd mentality, but in South Boston, if you don't save a space, then you don't have a spot. And in this case, since it was snowing pretty much straight for 30 days, you don't have a spot for a long time. So after shoveling out a space, you stick something there indicating a lawn chair or a plunger, or maybe people get more creative, indicating I'll be back and I'll be using this space. What's the uh, general best practices on this kind of underground process? The most famous space saver, I think, was an Elvis bust once, but we use more uh, mundane things like chairs and I have a a beverage bin that I put out there. None of them have been stolen yet. Um, The rule is actually did sort of put this in writing several years back. In South Boston, this has been a time-honored tradition, which actually makes it sound more glorious than it is, but something that the residents there have clung to pretty ferociously. And there was a city councilor from there, Jimmy Kelly, who was one of the leaders of the anti-busing movement back in the 70s. But one of his last battles was about keeping space savers in uh, South Boston. This is before I lived there. And the mayor at the time, Mayor Menino, was very anti-space saver. He ended up having to give in a little bit to Jimmy Kelly and agreed that space savers could be kept in these shoveled-out spots for 48 hours after the end of a snow emergency. But at the time, people would generally live up to that rule. And often, in those previous snowstorms, after 48 hours or 48 hours after the snow emergency was lifted, you begin to feel kind of stupid saving your spot or you feel shame, ashamed of keeping your spot because there's not that much snow left. It melts and you're putting out your chair in the middle of pavement. And, um, and then, so they begin to disappear and nor- normalcy returns to the neighborhood. What's happened in this case is that over the, you know, beginning at the end of January, we've had so many snowstorms in, the ro- in a row that there hasn't come that time when people start feeling a little sheepish about keeping their spots out there. And, and 48 hours after the last snow emergency lifted, it seemed that a new snow emergency was upon us. What are the most high-profile instances of spot rage? One thing that was tried this year, and sort of ironic that they did it at the start of a winter in which there was so much snow that I think people who never saved spots before actually started doing it, but the South End, which is separate from South Boston and quite different than South Boston, more expensive real estate, the neighborhood association there said, we don't do dibs, essentially. They put up these signs and basically saying, here in the South End, we are not going to do space saving. But there have been instances over there, which we did a story on, where people's tires were slashed, and there have been a couple instances over there of actual violence to the car because people are moving space savers. I do wonder, you know, if the city were to really crack down on this, it, it, it's something that I think could incite some sort of violence in some quarters. People feel very passionate about this. And I think one of the leading things that's keeping change out of South Boston is probably a concern about, you know, it's one of the reasons even people such as my husband and I, when we came in, you know, think this is all sort of ridiculous, but you end up sort of joining the herd because 
you know, if you move your neighbor's space saver and park there, you, you're risking damage to your car, and you're also sort of just risking damage to your way of life when that neighbor find, you know, knows that you're the one who, who did it. I mean, it's, and I remember once, it was a long time after the snow emergency, I did end up at 10 o'clock at night moving a space saver and putting my car there. And I came out in the morning and the space saver that had been in the spot was on top of my car with some scratches. You know, it's like people, <laughs> people do vent. I'll be watching you, Peter. That's what exactly, it seemed to be saying. Exactly. Yeah. Jennifer Peter, Senior Deputy Managing Editor for Local News at the Boston Globe, Space Saver Expert. Thank you for saving the space for us. Thank you. Maybe you're hearing it in my voice, but I'm a little, uh, what the uh, Jews call verklempt. I got a little bit of the phlegm. I got a microphone and a piece of glass between me and Andrea. But you know, if I had to face her, I'd feel really bad. I'd want another solution. I have no other solution due to the very nature of my job, but you, you have a solution. And it's not just because of sickness, it's because of these terrible roads and this bad weather. You have GoToMeeting. Use Citrix GoToMeeting. You can meet with clients and coworkers online from anywhere. Sick clients, that's their problem. It's not yours. If they sneeze on you, it only shows up in little droplets on the camera, not on your head. GoToMeeting helps you work smarter because anyone could join from a computer, a tablet, a smartphone. You turn on the webcam and read the room with HD video conferencing. Share screens to demo new products. Explain features, review documents, and get feedback in real time. I bet if they did a study, things like GoToMeeting and those kind of video teleconferencing would yield more efficient meetings for a lot of psychological reasons. Anyway, why not try it out? free for 30 days. You got nothing to lose. Go to meeting.com. Click the try it free button. Do it now and you could have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's go to meeting.com for your free 30 day trial. A few weeks ago on this show, I criticized Rep. Steve King, well, for a lot of things, but one was his terminology. He referred to illegal immigrants as deportables, and I called that deplorable. I also said I hated when people used the word illegals to describe people, but you just heard the phrase I did use. I said illegal immigrant. It seems to me accurate and descriptive, but a few listeners disagreed. Justin Davis said people find illegal alien or illegal immigrant hurtful. Why can't we refer to people as they choose? Well, to me, it's a little different from changing color to Negro to Black to African American. That's an example of calling a group what they choose. Or in the case of a transgendered person, using the gender pronoun they'd like. Illegal immigration is a big political issue, and the news media, if they really want to be fair and impartial, should strive not to use thumb-on-the-scale terms. But I'm open to having my mind changed, or at least the other side of this explained to me. So joining me now is Jose Antonio Vargas, who is a journalist and Pulitzer Prize winner. He is the founder of a nonprofit organization called Define American, and he has just recently partnered with the LA Times, a new platform called Emerging US. Hello. Thanks for joining us, Jose. Thank you so much for having me. So what is wrong with the phrase illegal immigrants as you hear it, as you see it? All right. So let me just really boil this down. I am here illegally. It's called illegal immigration. That's accurate. But I, as a person, am not illegal. Is that distinction clear? Sure. Like, people cannot be illegal. I mean, can you imagine, I mean, what that has actually done for people, being described like that? I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, I grew up in this country. I've been here since I was 12, 34 now. I remember as a kid in a classroom in California, whenever I heard the word illegal... I knew that they were referring to somebody like me because I found out at that point that I was here without papers. And what that does to people, 
right? It's a very dehumanizing thing. I remember having a conversation actually with a Jewish historian that said that that's what people did to the Jews, calling them illegal, right? That's, that's how the Holocaust happened. The term illegal immigrant is actually factually incorrect. To be in this country without authorization is a civil offense, not a criminal one. So calling somebody illegal immigrant is actually factually inaccurate. Well, it could be factually inaccurate. There is yeah. an illegal, there's the criminal offense of, say, border crossing, but then there is the civil offense of being here legally, then overstaying or hey. not having the correct documentation. So, knowing this, so, but, but, maybe the but, better but wait, phrase... More than 40% yeah. of people who are here illegally overstay their visa. Yeah. But to me, even the, using the term illegal immigrant, it doesn't get to how fluid and how complex... Being in this country is without papers. Unlawful immigrant probably says that better because it takes away the civil component. I mean, to me, I actually prefer undocumented because it tells us that we're talking about pieces of paper. But I've heard this, but to me, undocumented is unsatisfying because it's not a paperwork issue. It's a legal status issue. It's cart before the horse, you know? But but, but wait, but wait, a paperwork issue meaning, well, I am here right now illegally because I don't have pieces of papers that say... Right, that have that that I have authorization to be here. But you are here illegal. No, I would say again, cart before the horse. You are here illegally. And by the way, I'm for the Dream Act. Like I think that you oh, should. No, no, no. Fly, I mean, by the way, which I know. is great. I mean, yes. but but, look, but what I'm, I'm saying is, what I'm, I'm saying is, you just said I'm not. I'm here illegally because I don't have papers. I would say no, you don't have papers because you're here either illegally or unlawfully. Oh, I see what you're saying. But but but, but I mean, I've done maybe 400 events in 190 colleges in 45 states. What I've really found is that many people, they conflate. I can't even tell you how many times I hear people use the term illegal and Mexican interchangeably. As if all Mexicans, as if all Latinos are Mexicans, as if all Mexicans are undocumented. Right? Yeah. Can you imagine like what, what that has done in terms of like how we report the news? I think that there is definitely a uh, something to be said for not being hurtful, not stigmatizing a community. Uh, I will grant you that, and that should be taken into oh, well, the I'm, debate. I'm sorry. Thank you for granting me that. I, I, I have to say, <laughs> by the way, like, like your tone is very like, <laughs> like okay, and, and and thank you. I mean, you said that you support the Dream Act, and you know, I mean, I I, I don't know what your feelings are about immigration reform. Where do you stand on that? I think it definitely needs to be reformed. And so far, I think everything President Obama has proposed and also a lot of Republicans, too, a lot uh, of what they're proposing is high time that we need it. And I furthermore think that people who conflate illegal immigration and Mexican is stupid. And it. but to me, it's oh, man, I got to tell you, man, but it shows me that 30, you know, 30 something percent of Americans think New Mexico is in a different country. So it doesn't surprise me. I underestimated the level of anti-Latino vitriol in this country. That probably, for me, has been the biggest shock. So from a uh, journalist perspective, you've just partnered with the L.A. Times almost two years ago. They changed their style to avoid illegal immigrants. And what they do is some version of what you said, you know, describe every situation as best you can. Would you like to either in the style of your new venture or pushing the L.A. Times itself? Would what words, what phrases do you think they should use? I much prefer that. I I much prefer knowing what the circumstances are. Right. Yeah. Yep. And look, like, you know, journalism is my church. Reporting is my religion. I'm not a politician. I'm not about like using all these talking points that they seem to use that seem so tired and just so played out. Like, I really want to know more. Yeah. 
So that's the deal. We as journalists would like, if we can, to accurately describe the immigration status in the many nuanced ways that different people can have it. We don't always have that luxury. Someone will say to us, you know, they'll use a phrase like, oh, I'm here illegally. Well, what does that mean? Are you even describing it yourself? And I don't want to be hurtful, and yet I do want to be accurate. And I also want to be terse. So I will definitely no longer say illegal immigrant. I might say unlawful. I think what I'm going to try to do is to say that, you know, Whose uh, immigrant, whose family came, if I can, whose family came here hmm, without, with, without, uh, you know, I mean, again, if, without yeah. authorization, without papers, unlawfully, unlawfully, right? and, yes, and, and, and I mean, and, or who does not have legal residency status, right? This person yeah. who does not have legal residency status is in favor of the Dream Act, blah blah blah. I think it's a few words longer, but it's accurate, and accurate's always it's, better. It's yeah. More accurate, and it tell. Look, I mean, I, I feel like as journalists, our job, you know. We traffic in empathy mm-hmm. when it comes to issues like this. Yeah, and, and you know, so I I made a film. I directed a film called Documented, and we had a screening of the film in North Carolina a few months ago. After the screening of the film, an African American woman comes to me and says, "I find it really interesting that you talk about your life being subjected to pieces of papers." And I'm like, oh, "Yes." And then she said, "Well, when my great great grandmother came here." to America as a slave. She was, an, she was an older woman. When she came here as a slave, she was given a piece of paper, right, a bill of sale, to say that she was a slave. Can you connect those two things for me? Yeah. But you know what she's getting at, right? Yeah, she, she's saying, hey, we were documented in the worst way. Yeah. So is this about pieces of papers? I mean, you know, this is why for me, I mean, you know, I come from the Maya Angelou kind of, thought here, you know, I am a human being. Nothing human can be alien to me. And our jobs as journalists is to make us, to make these stories whole so that people can connect to them in the same way that I can connect with, you know, what the Jewish people had to go through, what the Irish had to go through, what the Italians had to go through in this country. Yeah, I think that's our job, is to connect people, not to divide them. Jose Antonio Vargas, the founder of Define American, a journalist, a filmmaker, editor of the new platform, Emerging Us, partner with the LA Times. Thanks so much, Jose. Thank you so much for having me. And now the spiel. Oh, really? Bill O'Reilly has his own Brian Williams problem. The headline was in Mother Jones. Define Mother Jones, okay? Here's Bill O'Reilly. Mother Jones, which is low circulation, considered by many the bottom rung of journalism in America. You know what? Let's not assign the statement of fact parts of this episode to Mr. O'Reilly. The issue, Fox News performer Bill O'Reilly claims that he was covering a war zone in Argentina during the Falklands War. What he meant was he was a thousand miles away from the Falkland Islands in the capital of Argentina at the time, though he certainly didn't give that impression when he described his actions in his 2001 book, No Spin Zone, quote, I've reported on the ground in active war zones from El Salvador to the Falklands. Okay. Now, O'Reilly is blustering and threatening and redefining terms. Of course, to say that O'Reilly isn't living up to the definition of journalist is like saying faith healer Benny Hinn is falling short of the standards of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. You know what? What O'Reilly does, it's okay. He's a huckster. America has a First Amendment. 
If he wants to put on the vestments of a newsman as he hosts an opinion show, caveat emptor. The Williams conflation was surprising. The O'Reilly evasion is expected, especially by me. Let's take this very simple sentence that Papa Bear uttered on his February 20th broadcast. Everything I've said about my repertorial career, everything, is true. That's not true. In 2001, before O'Reilly was a household name, but when it was clear to me that he had a really interesting cable show, I did a profile of him for the NPR program on the media. I hung around in his offices, I watched his show prep, I sat in on a taping, I had an M16 pointed at my head. Everything I've said is true. Everything. The M16 part is not true. In my report, and this was January 2001, I explained a lot of what O'Reilly was up to and fact-checked some of his claims. He said part of his shtick back then was to always say that he was a registered independent. He even said that to me. Everybody tries to label me, and, and I don't like it. I'm a registered independent politically, and I'm a journalist who looks at life the way it is, not the way I want it to be. So I went to the Department of Elections in Nassau County on Long Island. I had to go in person back then. Don't know about the situation now. I asked to see Bill O'Reilly's registration. I had them show it to me. I have it right here. Last name O'Reilly, first name William, initial J. Won't read the address. It's in Manhasset, date of birth, 9-10-49. Party enrollment. Oh, by the way, employer name, inside edition. Party enrollment. You must enroll in a party to vote in a primary. Check one box only in this section. Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, right to life. I do not wish to enroll in party. Check mark, Republican. Unmistakable. So O'Reilly then tells the National Journal and other publications, this is a hatchet job. I have never heard of Mike Pesca. I tell National Journal, uh, Mike Pesco was the guy in your office holding the microphone, asking you questions after you said stuff like this. The O'Reilly Factor TV show and the uh, O'Reilly Factor book is basically the first national presentation on television, and I think in nonfiction literature, that was written expressly for working Americans. That's who I represent. When you add the part in your book about how when you double-dated with Donald Trump, how do you think your audience is going to react to that as you as this champion of the working class? If a working class guy like me makes it, they're happy for me. And I think I have an obligation to help them as well with the knowledge that I've accumulated. Al Franken puts the entire episode in his book, Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them. He also dings O'Reilly for saying that he won a Peabody Award. It wasn't a Peabody, it was a poke. And then he documents a bunch of the misstatements of fact on the O'Reilly Factor. And O'Reilly goes on to say that the Factor has never had to issue a correction. A few years later, O'Reilly does this press tour where he says he's not allowed on NPR. You heard that report, right? That was on NPR. And it culminates in him walking out of a Terry Gross interview. Since then, I've put O'Reilly in the take him with a big grain of salt category, but I do owe him a huge debt of gratitude for inspiring the Colbert rapport. So what's this all mean? O'Reilly's a showman and a confabulator and an exaggerator. He can't have a Brian Williams moment because he's barely ever been like Brian Williams for a moment. In one O'Reilly show, there is enough material to get any real journalist suspended for months, and he has the fairest show on Fox. I really think so. You are never going to nail him on the Falklands thing because he will always have one more distraction or one more dance step around the issue or the ability to change the subject to his accuser's motivations. He knows what he's doing. Fundamentally, dishonest people do. This is what people who generally tell the truth don't understand about people who generally don't. The non-truth tellers, 
know what the truth is. They know how to walk right up to that line and never go over it. Ever wonder why the Bush administration always gave the very strong impression that Saddam Hussein was connected to 9-11, but never quite boldly said so in a way that we'd still be replaying in sound bites? It's because they knew the truth. They knew it was true and they knew what wasn't. And therefore, they were able to never go over to the untrue part. If their belief that Saddam was connected to 9-11 was a genuine belief, an incorrect genuine belief, but a genuine belief as opposed to a piece of rhetoric to wield that they knew wasn't true, it would be a totally different thing. They wouldn't know where the line was. They'd go over it willy-nilly. They'd leave themselves exposed when judged against it. The reason that you could debate endlessly if Buenos Aires is a war zone is because O'Reilly doesn't say, I was on the ground in the Falkland Islands. He says, I was in country at the time of war. He gives this strong impression. But perjury? No. And Paris' David Folkenflick, colleague and pal, has this insight into O'Reilly and Williams. Williams wants to be respected and loved. O'Reilly wants to be respected and feared. I'll add this. Williams got suspended, and O'Reilly will skate for a bunch of reasons, like the standards of their audiences, like their boss's motivations, like the fact that Williams lied about the U.S. military, kind of sensitive in America, O'Reilly lied about the Argentinian military, not an issue. But also, Brian Williams, as a newsman and a reporter, left himself exposed when he went off and told some tales. O'Reilly has built a career on that very skill. That is it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is about to enter a no-spin zone. mf or just intern Claire Tennisketter. I want more iced tea. Madam, counselor, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, Joel Meyer. Isn't it fair to say that you mark your territory by urinating, defecating, scratching, rubbing, and biting trees? I would like to take Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, with that falafel thing. Go to iTunes to listen to us or go to slate.com slash gist email to sign up for our email or get the app Yo and sign up for podcast. We'll tell you every time the show is ready. We're also on facebook.com slash slate gist. Pinheads like me who didn't grow up in Levittown, who are out of touch, will never get it. I'm a nitwit and a ninny hammer, a feckless, vainglorious nebbish, but I'll give me the last word. Thanks for listening. This is Josh Levine, host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. On this week's episode, we're joined by boxing writer Eric Raskin. We go into all the ins and outs of the long-delayed, much-anticipated uh, boxing match between Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao. We've got everything you need to know. You can subscribe to Hang Up and Listen at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. Slate Podcasts.